I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Male Plus. I am joined this week and every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Coming up on today's show, a forest scientist will teach us a bit about trees and how they could save us from this climate crisis. We'll speak to the author of a book about the violent female gangsters who terrorise selfridges. Yes. That sounds very much up my street. <laughs> I terrorise selfridges on a regular basis. <laughs> Are you laughing at me? I just around? with your giant handbag. Yes. So I'm just wondering how you are terrorising selfridges. <laughs> um, and I read this week that um, basically long COVID is the menopause, or is oh. the menopause is long COVID? I mean, basically, the symptoms are the same. Just being a woman, just being a woman, awfully is... tired, yes. and, and yes. wanting to have a, a lot of Kit Kats. Mm. So I'm going to we're going to talk to a, a menopause expert about that. Mm-hmm. And finally, last but not least, we'll talk to Teresa Chung about Greta Thunberg. Your fave. My favourite ever. So, Imogen, Mm. what kind of week have you had? Well, I've just been to the spirit of Christmas fair. Oh my God, yes. Well, that is is catnip for menopausal women. Every single person there... It's, it's almost compulsory, I think, to be menopausal if you go to the Christmas spirit. I felt spirit. really young. Yes. <laughs> For once. And it's full of ladies ladies of a certain age yes. buying sparkly scarves. Yes. Yes, a lot of that. Yes. Um, having a little restorative glass of something fizzy. I know, I missed that. Oh, did you not do that? No, no. sadly. Um, I always get very obsessed with the sort of stalls that sell country clothes. Yes. I don't ever go to the fudge. country. I yeah. bought a lot of fudge. <laughs> oh, and flavoured vodka. Did you buy any flavoured no, vodka? No, I didn't. I bought a lot of fudge which obviously is going to go off before Christmas, so it has to be eaten a yeah. sap. Yeah, I'm sure your husband will take care of that. <laughs> yes, He's awfully exactly. good on fudge. But anyway, so I suddenly felt Christmassy. Mm. So, um, so, and then obviously there have been these terrible adverts this week. <gasps> they're well, really boring, they're actually. Awful. Uh, the one, the John Lewis one is about an alien, which yes. is bizarre. I don't really know. I mean... Well, it's just that sort of very boring trope that happens every year, which is somebody who doesn't know what Christmas is. It's yeah. like Tiny Tim all over again, pressing their nose against but the window. But also it's about, it's about making us feel sad about Christmas. I know. What's so I've never, I never really understood about that. Surely yeah. Christmas... It, I liked that advert that they used to have for was it Argus? Argus used to have a great Christmas ad, which was just basically loads of presents flying around on the screen <laughs> and explosions. And I think it was someone awful like Slade singing a Christmas song. That's a Christmas yes. ad. Well, actually, I, I do have to say, these Marks and Spencer have done what they they're supposed to do. Which oh, is an animated Percy Pig. Haven't is they? There's a pig, yeah, which is that's great. That's the stuff of nightmares. An animated Percy Pig. <laughs> well, no, but at least there's lots of nice sort yeah. of chocolate panettone Absolutely. on offer. Yeah. The, the worst, the worst one is the JD Williams one. Yes, I know. Which is Davina McCall and that other one in their pants Amanda Holden and Amanda Holden in their pants and literally nothing more off-putting than women who are much thinner and fitter than me no, in their pants leaping in the air punching no. the sky what is weird about that advert is that section there's that advert is it's devoid of irony mm. there's a photograph of Amanda Holden who I actually do like she's mm. a nice fun person she's putting her lipstick on in a frying pan yeah. while bending over in a leather skirt looking mm. like some sort of Benny Hill mm. bird from the 70s I mean it's bizarre so, wow okay that, yeah. Where are we going with that? Also, when you get to our age, you can put your lipstick on without any sort of reflective you surface. You can do it drunk in the back yeah. of the cab. <laughs> I've done it often. <laughs> I am very good at that. Anyway, um, well, I don't know. I've had a Christmas blah. I think you just need some eggnog. <laughs> or some fudge. Yeah, some fudge. <laughs> or a flavoured vodka. That yes. could be a good one. Yes. Yes. Thousands of women who've been told they've got long COVID may, in fact, be suffering from the menopause, it transpired this week, which I thought was quite interesting because 
basically the symptoms are pretty similar. Both are horrendous. Long COVID is an umbrella term for a range of persistent symptoms that can linger for months after someone has fought off the virus. And survivors have complained of lasting fatigue, sleep problems and brain fog, among hundreds of other things. Um, I thought it was quite interesting. There's a piece in the Lancet Regional Health written by academics who said many symptoms of long COVID have a significant overlap with the perimenopause and menopause, both of which affect women of all ages. This could lead to women with symptoms of the perimenopause and menopause being misdiagnosed with long COVID. So I thought we'd have a chat with someone who actually knows about this stuff. Dr. Louise Newsom, who is a menopause specialist and founder of the Menopause Charity. Um, and she's going to join us now. I read this thing earlier this week about about long COVID being mistaken for the menopause, or sorry, no, actually the menopause being mistaken for long COVID. And it just struck me uh, as extraordinary because, of course, we know we talk a lot more about the menopause now than we ever used to, but people are still a little bit dismissive. But it is just, just it can just be very, very unpleasant, can't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the menopause and the perimenopause can affect women in so many different ways. But actually, what's really interesting, if you look at the symptoms of long COVID, you look at symptoms of the perimenopause and menopause, they're very similar. So symptoms such as brain fog, poor memory, reduced stamina, muscle aches and pains, they're the same for all. And the commonest group of people with long COVID are women, actually, in their 40s to 60s. And and you hear on social media all the time women saying, my periods are changing, my periods have stopped since my COVID um, and since I've uh, been diagnosed with long COVID. Um, it's very interesting. And as you know, there's no diagnostic test for the perimenopause or menopause and there's no diagnostic test for long COVID. So they're diagnosed on symptoms alone usually. Exactly. And I remember right at the beginning of COVID, uh, people were saying that if you had est- a lot of oestrogen, that was a good thing uh, in fighting off COVID. Why would what, so? Do you think that might be related in some way as well? Because obviously, if you're if you're perimenopausal or menopausal, you've got a drop in oestrogen. So there's two things really. We know that oestrogen is a great immu- immune modulator. We've got oestrogen receptors on all our white cells that fight infections. So we know that when we have oestrogen in our bodies as women then our cells were more efficient, they work better, there's a better mm. number. We have got studies showing that women who take HRT are more protected, less likely to die from COVID. So that's with the COVID infection. But with long COVID, we know that any infection can upset the way our ovaries work, but also mm. the coronavirus attacks these receptors called the ACE2 receptors, and we've got a lot of them in our ovaries. So I think some mm. women who've had COVID are actually getting a worsening of their perimenopausal menopausal symptoms because they've had a COVID infection. Isn't is long COVID basically sort of post-viral? Long COVID definitely exists and there's so much work, really good work looking at what's going on. But my concern is actually that there are a lot of women who have got long COVID, but they're also perimenopausal or menopausal. And we know that only the minority of women are given HRT, despite the nice guidance showing the majority of women would benefit from it. So I'm trying to work out, you know, how much is the menopause and how much is long COVID or how much is both. But actually, if a woman's got long COVID, she can still take HRT because it's very safe. And so what we should be doing is screening women and saying, do you think it's your hormones? And we actually recently did a survey of over 600 women to say, these are women with long COVID, to say, do you think your long COVID symptoms could be due to the perimenopause or menopause? And 89% said yes. 
Um, but only 50% had actually spoken to a healthcare professional about their hormones. I mean, it's clear that we don't really understand that much yet about the whole thing, do we? So I suppose there's probably a bit more research to be done. But do you think that, I mean, as a precaution, you know, women should just take HRT if they're in that age bracket? Because, I mean, the menopause is like the Spanish Inquisition. It's going to, de- you don't, it always takes you by surprise, but it's definitely going to happen. You never expect it, but it is going to definitely happen one way or the other. What we should be doing as women, if we think we're perimenopausal or menopausal, is saying, why am I not taking HRT? As you say, we should be asking for it. And it's not just estrogen. Testosterone really can help with brain fog, improve stamina. You know, we've had anecdotally quite a few people who've been diagnosed with long COVID whose many, not all, but many of their symptoms have improved with the right dose and type of HRT. Right. But the, but the NHS doesn't tend to provide testosterone as part of HRT. I mean, it's quite hard to get an HRT on the, on the NHS, isn't it? Yes, and it shouldn't be, because all we do is work out of the NICE menopausal guidance, which actually now are six years old. And they do mention testosterone. The problem with testosterone, as you know, is it's not licensed for women. You know, men can buy Viagra over the counter, which has more risks than testosterone for women. But they will come. You know, there's a lot of work. I'm working as a, a, an advisor for the NHS for their National Menopause Programme. And, you know, they really want to um, improve access for HRT. But, what, but why isn't it... What? Why isn't it that when a woman gets to the age of, say, 45, or, you know, in the same way that you get to the age of 50 and they start sending you for mammograms, it, when you get to the age of, say, 45, which is roughly when the perimenopause starts for most women, I mean, it's not complicated, is it? I mean, some have it much earlier, but broadly speaking, that's when it will start. Why aren't women just offered HRT? I mean, because all the studies show now that if you start taking it in your perimenopause, it's actually much better for you because you don't get any of the negative... I totally agree. And it's not just the symptoms, it's the future health. We, we've said about COVID, but also heart disease, diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia. And no one's been thinking about HRT in a positive way. Even if you go onto various websites, they'll talk about the risks. The risks are really not there for the types of HRT that we prescribe now. Well, no, because this because there was that big famous study in America that put everybody, you know, got everybody worried about HRT. But actually, when I looked into it and spoke to some people about it, the problem with that study was that it was conducted on women who were much, much older and therefore they'd had 20 or 30 years without HRT. And so all the damage of losing your hormones had already happened to them, if you see what I mean. It was also a different type of HRT to what we prescribe now. So you can't, but even looking at that study, actually, when you follow those women up for 20 years after the study, because it's 20 years old now, women who took HRT um, actually have a lower risk of death from all causes, including cancer. So it still shows the benefits of HRT. So it's, um, we should be really thinking, why are we not, as physicians, prescribing HRT? And as women, why are we not taking it? And I've, certainly a lot of work I'm doing is trying to empower women so that they can ask for the right help and the right type of HRT. But also I've got a not-for-profit company doing a lot of education for healthcare professionals as well. That was Dr Louise Newson, menopause specialist and founder of the Menopause Charity. So COP26 was a mixed bag, um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this um, renewed promise to end deforestation by 2030, uh, because I have become slightly obsessed with trees in my old age. And now when I'm feeling a bit sad or lonely or tired or stressed, I just go and look at ancient trees, of which actually there are many in this country. And about two, no, about three weeks ago, I went and I looked at uh, a yew in Wales that is supposedly 5,000 years old, which is amazing when you think of it. But um, 
we have seemed still don't really have a lot of respect for trees. And um, some estimates say that we're losing 80,000 acres of rainforest every day. So I thought we'd get a specialist on here and here to spread a little love about trees is forest scientist and author of The Hidden Life of Trees and The Heartbeat of Trees, Peter Woolliban. Um, so I was I wanted to talk to you because I... Um, I have a bit of a fascination with trees. I've sort of slightly recently become interested in them. And I was very pleased about this deforestation pledge at COP26. Trees are, well, we just sort of take them for granted, but they are quite incredible organisms. I went to see a yew uh, a few weeks ago that is supposed to be 5,000 years old. I mean, is that possible? Uh, it's possible. We have the, the oldest tree in Sweden, for example, perhaps the oldest tree in the, wor- in the world is a spruce, which is supposed to be 9,550 years old. And perhaps there are older trees concerning the root system, which is the major part of the, the tree. So I've, I've, I haven't heard so far from you uh, 5,000 years old, but, it, but it's possible. How do you, when a tree is that old, how do you sort of, how do you know that it's that old without cutting it down? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question because you're not able to, to count the You don't the really want to cut it down and then go, oh, that was the oldest tree uh, in the world, but uh, oh, we've cut it down. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the method is the C14 uh, method, um, special variation of, of carbon. And um, then when you have some substance from the rotten parts of the root system, then you, then you can uh, examine it and, um, and they found out that it should be wrong about that, yeah. So you can look at the roots, can you? I mean, the roots are basically the key. And and so tell me, so reforestation and deforestation, I mean, how much do trees contribute to carbon cleansing on the planet? I mean, you know, if you if you had your way, how many trees would you have to plant? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult, uh, difficult question. Uh, diff- because um, in the first years, perhaps up to decades, um, the, the soil will release more carbon dioxide than the new trees can take up. So... It's not, uh, you can't um, plant trees for your carbon debt. Uh, but on the other hand, forests are much more than carbon sinks. Um, they, they create rain clouds. We know that, that old growth forests in Europe create rain clouds. They cool the, the, the landscape around about 10 degrees Celsius on hot summer days in comparison to cities even up to 20 degrees. So uh, they are like air conditioners and uh, therefore much more important than than just uh, uh, as a carbon thing but but we are uh, in the moment we are uh, just looking on the on the carbon things uh, concerning forests but they are so much more yeah and and where are the where's the biggest concentration i mean in terms of in terms of location of these sort of forests i mean where where are the most does it matter where they come from does it matter what sort of tree it is does it matter how old it is does does any of that have an impact or can you just literally plant plant a forest full of new trees and they'll do the job just as well as an old one no no <laughs> Uh, we are not able to to uh, plant forests. We're just able to plant trees. Um, forests um, uh, consist around about 100,000 species uh, from birds and mammals down to bacteria or fungi. So, uh, and trees are just one part, of course, the biggest part, but just one part of, of this ecosystem. And we know when you plant trees, it takes more than 100 years um, um, than uh, when it will become a forest. So, uh, and a forest, an intact forest, um, is made of um, native tree species. So it's, for example, we, we see it in Great Britain, but also in Germany, that that um, there are big plantations made of non-native Sitka spruce, for example, 
And this is just a green desert, a green desert uh, which is uh, which produces timber, but it's it's not an ecosystem. So this artificial ecosystems they will break down um, um, in, uh, when climate change uh, proceeds. So we see that in Germany that we will lose around about 50% of our forests within the next decade um, because they are non-native spruce and pine plantations. So we should return to our native forests. Your native breeds. And is a forest itself an organism? So does it function as a community? I mean, do the individual trees have different roles within the forest? I mean, or is it just a sort of collection of trees all in one place? No, 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 no. Um, they are all working together. And we know that that, uh, that trees are working like a superorganism. Uh, they warn each other. They share sugar uh, through their root system. They share the sugar with the fungi, with the bacteria, with, uh, with, with 10,000 of bacteria species. So um, it's like a clockwork. And uh, we, we know just, just some, some wheels. And uh, therefore, it's so hard to understand forests. Um, and when you manipulate forests, for example, by harvesting timber, you're destroying this clockwork. And we don't know the exactly point uh, from where on this clockwork is not working any longer. Because someone said to me that sometimes forests will put the weaker trees around the edge and the stronger trees in the middle. And that there's a sort of, there's a whole sort of, it's almost like a body and it has diff- different parts of it have a different function. Is that right? So if you're just going off to Brazilian rainforest and you're hacking half of it, you could just be cutting off its leg or something. Yeah, it's, it's perhaps like this or... Um, uh, it's it's better like destroying uh, a family, uh, yeah, because they are supporting each other. And um, decades ago, foresters have, or perhaps even up until now, uh, regard as competitors. And in reality, um, they are working together. There's a lot of cooperation. And uh, the more uh, members of this family you cut down, the weaker the whole family gets. And um, we know, for example that uh, intact forests in Europe would, uh, would have four times more biomass than artificial forests, than plantations. And, uh, if you, and, and, and those uh, artificial forests, plantations, for example, are up to eight degrees in average on hot summer days warmer than uh, native forests. So native forests, it's not like a mechanical thing. They create actively uh, rain clouds uh, and um, there's a lot of research going on for example even in, in Africa and the Congo basin um, that the first rain period uh, of the year 80 percent of the rain is created by the by the forest itself so they are, the forests are yeah as I said much more than than just a source of raw material than just a carbon sink okay thank you Peter and tell me one thing just tell me one fascinating thing about trees that I don't know Go on, just something amazing. Uh, yeah, um, there's research going on if trees are able to see really sharp and sharp pictures um, on little more on smaller plants in laboratories. Uh, research um, um, scientists found out that they are able to see family members. Well, they can see their own family members. They can see their own family members. Uh, that's not research on trees because trees are too big for laboratories. But uh, on small plants, uh, it's well researched. It's hard science. Plants are much more than we thought. They really are. Thank you so much, Peter. That's fascinating. And your books are The Hidden Life of Trees and The Heartbeat of Trees. I'm going to go and get them. The 
Forty Thieves was the name of a London-based gang in the 1930s comprised entirely of women who posed as wealthy housewives, innocently browsing the rails of the UK's most luxurious clothing stores. At the time, it was not unusual for shoplifters to pay £100 a week, which I, frankly... What, £100 a week to shoplift? Yeah, oh. quite good, right? Mm. Out-earning men's average wages 10 to 1. Joining me now is the author of The Queen of Thieves, about the Forty Thieves, uh, Beezy Marsh. Hi. I read I read about your book and I just thought I love the idea of all these women basically terrorising all the blokes in London. So tell <laughs> tell us about them. Well, you know, same as you. I just, as soon as I got to know about these girls and I actually met some of their relatives and descendants. So I met some of the, the daughters, the granddaughters, the nieces. Um, I just thought these girls are, I mean, if they didn't exist, you'd have to invent them. They're larger than life. And... Um, their story, it's kind of like gangland was a woman's world. It's not this testosterone fueled Peaky Blinders men just going around doing, you know, doing all the villainy. I just loved the idea, got really excited by the idea that women had organized themselves and ran their own sophisticated operation. And also they were poor women, they were working class. So though obviously mm. crime is wrong, I think, you know, we, if we really admit what we're interested in everybody loves reading about crime whether that's watching you know crime things on the television or all those villains in in literature going back from Fagin and Bill Sykes um to you know more modern things so I just thought well there's a story to be told there and these girls were they were very limited by their by their social class. Presumably their, their option would have been, you know, go into service, work in a factory or become a shoplifter. I mean, they, I mean they, they, they were quite they were quite well known though, weren't they, Beezy, this gang? They were called the 40 Elephants, weren't they? Well, they came from around the Elephant Castle and also some of the relatives of these girls told me they were called the 40 Elephants because they looked like elephants when they were carrying, when they'd got their swag about their person. They became utterly notorious and they kind of... Their notoriety grew so that when they went to court, the reports that I've seen in the newspaper cuttings from the 20s and 30s is, you know, they, their stories are repeated in the Liverpool Echo, the Northern Echo, you know, the Bournemouth Evening News, the Brighton Argus. So they were quite, there were celeb- celebrities in their own time. What was, the, what was the leader called? Was it Diamond Annie or something? Or Alice Diamond and her real name was Diamond, um, but she used other aliases, which makes sort of tracking her down a little bit difficult. She sometimes called herself Alice Black, Alice Blake, Dolly Blake, Nora Emerald, one of my favourites. Obviously, she had a she wore a row of diamond rings as a knuckle duster. Oh, yes, as a knuckle duster. As a knuckle duster, yes, I know. Yes, which is the best bit, isn't it? <laughs> Looking in the police records, because I did a lot of research in the National Archives, I was told by people who knew her. Oh, she was a big woman. She was tall. She was as tall as any man. And um, when you mm. look at her police record, it, she starts off in about 1915, sort of being about five foot ten, which is tall. And then when you get kind of mm. the 1920s and 30s in the press reports, the reporters are practically salivating, saying she's six foot one tall in the dock. The giant, <laughs> the giant queen of peace. So I just love this idea that she had literally grown as her notoriety grew. And obviously the, the listeners can't 
see images of them here, but in the Daily Mail, the Mail Online, uh, there was an amazing story there. Yeah, she, there were some great pictures of her. She did look absolutely terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Get the furs. I mean, the clothes that they're wearing. They're wearing their stolen swag. And I've had a dress historian look at their cloche hats. You know, she said these are designer hats these girls are wearing. And they are, they were doing this thing called putting on the posh. So they would dress up to go and fit in in Selfridges. Gamages. Yeah, didn't they famously do over Selfridges? Wasn't yes. that wasn't that their big thing that they famously did over yeah, Selfridges? Yeah, they did, and they they used to like. Well, they had various ruses, and they worked in sort of teams of three to four, and they would do this thing called steaming. So they'd they'd kind of all go through the store. They'd all be grabbing things, or they'd be more sophisticated, and they'd do kind of bag swaps at the doorways, and they'd have their Bentleys and their cars, which were driven by men who were paid but not allowed to be in the gang, um, and were outside. <laughs> and so they'd make a bit of a day of it. And when the heat was on in London, and when, well, when the early store detectives, who were called walkers, had got wise to who they were, they'd go on these day trips. So they'd go to Brighton, they'd go to Southend, they'd go to Birmingham, Manchester. And there they had different ploys where they would get case suitcases full of goods and they'd leave them at the, the left luggage office. Or they'd parcel up... <laughs> their stolen swag and post it back to themselves so that if they were ever caught, they could say, well, I've got nothing on me, governor. (laughs) That's hilarious. What happened to them? Did they sort of just... Well, in the end, okay, so by the the 1970s and 80s, things were becoming more difficult because of, you know, store detectives and, and various methods that they got people nicking but actually I can exclusively reveal that the granddaughter great granddaughters some of them are still at it and um, I did find myself in a shop with one of them and in the best traditions I made my excuses and left before anything illegal happened um, but she was saying oh yeah you no know, I've still got the drawers I've still got my my hoisters knickers which are like baggy ones to the knee that belong to my nan and I still you know I I still to order and I was I'm sure. I've never sold it so much as a sweet. Do, do they sell it on, Breezy? Do they yeah. sell it on? Because surely you can only have so many yeah, pairs yeah. of shoes. Okay, so this was a highly organised network, which was why it was so lucrative. They, the Queen Alice um, had a very strict code and you were not allowed to wear what, you were sto- what you'd stolen and she would punish you. And, you know, these girls were not nice. They carried razors and hatpins and they would use them and they would use them on people who transgressed. So you handed it to the Queen. She had a network of fences, people who would sell on the stolen goods right across um, South London, West London, all points northeast and West. And the girls would be paid this amazing wage and the gangster mad Frankie Fraser told me, you know, rather dubiously that, oh, yeah, they could out-earn the men 10 to 1. So in the 40s, you could earn £100 a week. It was seen as a really good career choice. And then they loved to dress up, to go back to the shops with money and buy things. <laughs> and buy the stuff that they actually would have stolen. My God, that's hilarious. <laughs> It's like a cat going back to the kitty litter. <laughs> yeah, totally. And going to those beauty shop assistants and producing their £10 note and saying, I will, I'll have that lovely silk blouse, which, you know, today with fast fashion, I think a lot of us have lost touch with how tough it was, particularly in the years of the early 20th century, where clothes were hugely expensive and women's wages were really, you know, low wages. Often the man had control of the money, Women in factories would be earning, you know, a couple of pounds a week, if that. 
and it, you didn't have an NHS and healthcare and social security. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I mean, we, we, we shouldn't glamorise violence and obviously criminality, but it does feel like they, they sort of had a need in a, in a funny kind of a way. I mean, that doesn't justify it, but, you know, there, there, there was much more of a need than there is perhaps today to go around shoplifting. I think that was partly why the community, A, they were scared of these women, but B, they kind of did fulfil a need and, certainly speaking on some Facebook groups, local Facebook groups to South London, Walworth, the Elephant Castle, people get a bit misty-eyed. Oh, I remember, you know, my nan had someone who would get her stockings for her at a nice Mm. knockoff price or a lovely dress. You know, particularly rationing, there's rationing years where my book, Queen of Thieves, published, which is published by Orion um, and is out now, um, it is set immediately post-war. Um, mm. this particular um, book. There will be a prequel in the 20s and a sequel in mm. the 50s. But times were really hard, you know, mm. and we had this rationing and people couldn't get stockings and so, or, or a, a, a new dress. So, and I think post-war people really wanted to sort of celebrate and party. Well, it's fascinating. Anyway, I, I think it'll be a, a, Sounds a, like a, riot. a bit of a fun and diversion for people. It's called <laughs> The Queen of Thieves by Beezy Marsh and it's out now. Thank you very much, Beezy. Greta Thunberg, or Saint Greta of Thunberg, as we must now call her, first learned about climate change, apparently, when she was just eight years old. (laughs) Must have been fun in her family. Anyway, she's been recognised globally as a climate activist now for three years, starting with her protest outside the Swedish Parliament in 2018, when she was a mere slipper 15. Now she's attending meetings like COP26 and telling everybody how useless they are. Teresa Chung, spiritualist and author of the Encyclopedia of Birthdays, joins us now to tell us what the stars have in store for St. Greta of Thunberg. I think you don't like her. I, I th- like her. Of course you like her. <laughs> I'm much more woke than she's, you. She's just so annoying on 27 different uh, yeah, levels. Yeah, you see, I think you should embrace no. her. No, 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 no. Sarah, anyway, let's, no. See, let's see what Teresa has to say. Nope. <laughs> so, Teresa, come on. <laughs> um, as you can probably tell from my intro, I really love Greta Thunberg. I think she's really Teresa, super. Uh, literally, she's Sarah's Room 101. I don't know why. She's a sweet slip of a girl who's very good at telling grown-ups off. She is my Room 101. <laughs> she is I your just, Room 101. The way that she keeps saying blah, 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 like she's invented the world's best joke. It was <laughs> not very funny the first time around. It's not funny now. Stop it. Well, she's got... Yeah, go, Teresa, quick. Shut Sarah up. So so is she... Am I going to have to... <laughs> shut is, her up. Is she, base, is she going to become the queen of everything? She and will, am I going will. to have to go to prison for yes. saying rude things about yes, her? Yes, you will. Well, she is the queen of Capricorn. She's in the Oh, well, that explains everything. I can't January stand Capricorns. <laughs> I literally can't. <laughs> Let me explain. What she shows is Capricorn, the determination, the persistence, the workaholic, but also the narrow-minded and, and, you know, the unbearably high standards that can be a factor of that sign. Smug. (gasps) Are you looking for the word smug? Stop it. (laughs) Sanctimonious. Is that another word that would work? I don't know. I'm just asking. I'm going to call security in a minute, get Sarah removed from her own podcast. (laughs) I think you're going to like her the older she gets because a marked feature of Capricorn is that they always tend to be sort of, when they're young, they're very old, they're old and serious, old souls. But the older they get, it flips. They become very childlike and fun-loving. It's almost like they're making up for what they haven't done earlier. So I think give her time and I think you might actually 
like her more. So is she going to go out and buy herself a massive gas-guzzling Jaguar or something? <laughs> you know, and start wearing leather shoes and, yeah. and, and you're smoking you're fags. Fun, you're gonna I would fun, love that. You're going to get fun, Greta. She's going <laughs> to be ringing your door but go, hi. She's going to be dropping by for tea in her, in her Gulf Stream. Yeah. <laughs> right <In> now. <laughs> leather jumpsuit. I can't focus. Right now, she is so cap- Capricorn-y, but that's going to change the older she gets, and particularly around the age of 40. She could go wild. She will have fun. She won't, she'll lose her fear of looking stupid. She will, she will become something very different. But right now, she feels very much, as, as that generation says, said does she's kind of like a representative of it because they were born at a time when pluto is in sagittarius and sagittarius rules the media so they're using the media to try and change the world and what they say she really really it represents that generation and in a way it's kind of endearing because they kind of want the best of the world and they're trying to tell us grown-ups what you know is best for us and the planet um it's kind of endearing but she's very intense she has her mars in scorpio which is huge intensity but she's also i think got her sun and moon in capricorn so she really is true to her sign and being january the third determination is absolute key right really with her yes. she's dogged and persistent she's not going to give up yes. good unbearably good. high standards good so. i love her very good well i'm glad you think she's going to get to the age of 40 which probably which at least means the planet's going to survive that long which, well, that's... <laughs> which she doesn't seem to think it is don't get me wrong i'm 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 all in favor of stopping climate change and all of that i just wish it didn't have to be quite so humorless <laughs> I... Do you know what I mean? I just, I just, I just want to save the world, but I also want it to be a fun world to live in when yes, you've saved is that it. What it is? I she may well just... become a stand-up comedian later oh, in life. Oh, sure, Teresa. That would be hilarious. That would be brilliant. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> but another thing to watch out with the climate is the second half of 2022 doesn't look too great. Uh, um, the 2022 is is the first half of 2022 uh, more positive, but second half looking quite difficult climate change wise. Uh, yeah, more rain, fires, fires, and, 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 and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Though. Yeah, I think that's the first part of the year. But they're looking at you have to look at the slower mm. moving planets, and of course, it's it's all about Uranus. <laughs> We're keeping up with the Uranus. <laughs> that was Teresa Chung, a spiritist and author of the Encyclopedia of Birthdays. I thought that was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> just honestly you're you're yes i think you need to go and have a, a, a deep breath <sighs> yes there you go yeah i know she's a very sweet girl i shouldn't be mean about her she's lovely of course she's quite lovely. irritating if you enjoy listening to the half hour why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos opinion pieces and more if you want to get in touch tweet us at mailplus me at Western of the rag or imogen at imogen ej 